Now let's see if uh, you remember uh, the basic gist of those first five churches we've looked at over the past month. As we look at the map here, remember the first church we looked at in that mail route that worked clockwise through Asia Minor. The first church we looked at last month was the church at Ephesus. Jesus addressed a letter to that church at the beginning of Revelation chapter 2. Remember, Ephesus was kind of like the New York City of the Roman Empire. Second up was Smyrna. That was kind of like, uh, kind of like the Acapulco or the Puerto Vallarta of the Roman Empire. Next up was the capital city of Pergamos, also known as Pergamum. Uh, it was kind of like uh, the Washington DC of the Roman Empire crossed with Woodstock because they had some crazy worship of idols going on in that city of Pergamum. Fourth, we had the city of Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira was a guard city for the capital city of Pergamum. So Thyatira was kind of like the Fort Irwin of the Roman Empire. Fifth, uh, one we looked at two weeks ago, uh, the city of Sardis. Uh, Sardis was kind of like the Beverly Hills of the Roman Empire. And then number six, the one we'll look at today, Philadelphia. Philadelphia was kind of like the Ontario of the Roman Empire. It was an important city, but certainly of the seven wasn't the most important. It was a rather wealthy city, but not the most wealthy. And it had some good things going on, but it certainly didn't rise to the top of the seven as far as important and powerful cities in Asia Minor. And so here we had Ontario, this Ontario-type city, the city of Philadelphia. And uh, this city, it was about 28 miles southeast of that city we looked at last time, the city of Sardis. It was a border town city, this city of Philadelphia was. It was at the crossroads of three ancient kingdoms, the kingdoms of Mysia and Lydia and Phrygia. And as you might know, the word Philadelphia means brother lover or city of brotherly love. It was founded by King Eumenes II in the 2nd century B.C. He was a king of Pergamum at the time, and he named the city after his younger brother, Adelus II. Adelus loved his older brother, the king, so much, uh, people all around Asia Minor began to learn this. And so uh, that older brother, the king, recognized how much uh, his younger brother was loyal to him as the king and how much his younger brother loved him. So he began calling his younger brother Philadelphia, uh, the one who is loved. And he named this city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love and dedicated to his younger brother. Now, many uh, of those in uh, the area of, of history, many historians, uh, will say that this city of Philadelphia was founded by Eumenes II specifically to spread the Greek culture to the Eastern world, to deeper parts of Asia. Now, especially in the first century, uh, there was a lot of volcanic activity uh, in and around this city of Philadelphia, and there were some good things and some bad things that went along with that. For starters, one of the reasons Philadelphia did so well economically was because they had this very fertile soil, this very nutrient-rich soil, because it had volcanic ash in it. They made it very nutrient-rich, and so the vineyards there in the city of Philadelphia were some of the best vineyards in the world, second only to the best vineyards in 
Italy. And so they had wonderful farmland, but that volcanic activity also presented some problems. Uh, there were these issues of reoccurring earthquakes in the area. And in the year AD 17, there was a major earthquake in Asia Minor. Guess where the epicenter was? You guessed it, right there in Philadelphia. It destroyed the downtown area of Philadelphia. It just leveled it. It became a pile of rubble. And as best as we can tell, uh, they were able to rebuild that city, but it was never quite the same. Uh, we also know that uh, there was an important Jewish synagogue there in the city of Philadelphia. And uh, that synagogue seems to have been the epicenter of Christian persecution in the city. In the early years of Christianity, the first part of that first century A.D., Christianity was viewed by most Jews and by most Romans as a sect of Judaism. And so it was very common in the early years of Christianity for Jewish Christians to continue attending synagogue. That was pretty common. But as Gentiles began converting to Christianity and Gentiles began to be assimilated into the Christian church and not required to be circumcised and not required to follow all the Old Testament laws, as that began to happen, there was this shift in the mid-first century. And both Jews and Romans started viewing Christianity as a completely separate religion. They began to view it as a religion that was hostile to both Judaism and Romanism. And so Christianity, pretty unfairly, began to receive a lot of persecution in that latter part of the first century. By the time we get to the end of the first century A.D., Christians are being so much persecuted by the Romans and Jews that as we've seen with these other churches in Revelation, many are being imprisoned or fired from their jobs or even killed for their faith. And here in Philadelphia, it seems that most of the persecution was coming at the hands of the Jewish people. Uh, That will become clear as we read what Jesus has to say to the Christians here in Philadelphia, particularly in verses 7 through 13. So today the city of Philadelphia goes by a different name. It goes by the name Allah Shahir, and this is what the town looks like today. And there in the center of the town, there's these three stone pillars. That's almost all that remains of the ancient city of Philadelphia, those three pillars, those three columns there in the middle of this vast city that we call Alashahir today in the country of Turkey. Well, with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive into Revelation chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 7. Please uh, follow along in your Bibles as I begin reading Revelation 3, starting in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. 
Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless us as we study his word today. Well, in verse 7, that first verse in Jesus' letter to the Christians in Philadelphia, uh, Jesus addresses this letter to the angel. Remember, that means the messenger of the church. We believe that was the pastor, the leader of that church. And then Jesus gives this brief description of himself. He says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. Jesus begins by pointing out that he is holy and he is true. Remember that the word holy means to be set apart. That's what the word holy means. It means to be set apart. And holiness is God's number one characteristic. And because it's God the Father's number one characteristic, it's also Jesus Christ's number one characteristic. Now, God is love. That's true. God is merciful. God is compassionate. And God is just. He is all those things. But all of those characteristics are grounded in His holiness. God is set apart in His love. He is set apart in His mercy. He's set apart in His compassion. He's set apart in His justice. Sometimes we ask, how could a loving God possibly allow a child to get cancer? And we forget that God is holy in His love. His love is not like our love, so He's not going to love in the exact same way that we do. His love is set apart. His love is holy. Sometimes we ask, how could a just God allow rapists or murderers to go along for such a long period of time without being punished? How could a just God do that? We forget that God is holy in His justice. God's holy. His justice is not like ours, so His justice isn't going to play out exactly like our justice does. It is set apart. It is holy justice. Twice in Scripture, in Isaiah 6, verse 3, and in Revelation 4, verse 8, we find some of the highest angels in heaven falling down before God and crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The angels in heaven know that God's greatest characteristic is His holiness. And what is true of God the Father, as I mentioned, is equally true of Jesus Christ. Jesus' greatest characteristic is His holiness. He is completely set apart from all corruption. He's completely set apart from all wickedness. He's completely set apart from all sin. Jesus is perfect in His love. He is perfect in His grace. He is perfect in His justice. Why? Because Jesus Christ, His most notable characteristic, His most foundational characteristic is His holiness. So what is Jesus saying to the Christians in Philadelphia? He's saying this, What I am about to say to you is set apart. It is holy. It is my perfect message for you. Because I am both holy and true, I want you to know that this message is both holy and true. You can completely trust what I'm about to tell you. Isn't that good? 
He's identified himself as holy and true, so we know his message he's about to give them is also holy and true. In verse 7, Jesus adds that he is the one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Well, what does that mean? Well, long story short, Jesus is making it clear that he himself holds the authority as the leader of Israel. Jesus is king of the Jews. Jesus himself holds the key to God's heavenly temple. And he is, catch this, the doorkeeper. Jesus is the doorkeeper. If he opens the door for someone to get saved and go to heaven, guess what? That person is going to get saved and go to heaven. No one can close that door. If Jesus closes the door to heaven, there's nobody in the universe that can open that door that Jesus has shut. Why? Because Jesus is the doorkeeper. Now, if Jesus were to follow the normal three-point outline that he's been following with most of his letters to the seven churches, we would expect in this next verse, verse 8, he would uh, give the church a few praises, and then maybe in the next verse he would go to point two of his three-point outline, and he'd begin rebuking them for something uh, or maybe a few things they did wrong. And then finally, at the end of his letter, he would give them a few promises. And so we find this outline in most of these seven letters. Uh, First he praises them, then he rebukes them, and then he makes some promises to them. But we don't find that outline here in his letter to the church in Philadelphia. Why not? Because Philadelphia is one of the two churches that Jesus doesn't rebuke about anything. He doesn't level a single rebuke against this church here in Philadelphia. And so it's safe to say the church at Philadelphia was a model church. It was a model church. Unlike the last church we studied two weeks ago, the church at Sardis, uh, the church at Sardis, remember, received all rebukes and no praises. But this church at Philadelphia receives all praises and no rebukes. So if you're big on outlines, here's how you could outline these next few verses of Jesus' letter to the church uh, in Philadelphia. So in verses 8 through 10, what does Jesus do? In verses 8 through 10, uh, Jesus gives them some praises and gives them also some promises. It's really a mixture of praises and promises. And in verses 11 through 12, Jesus makes a few more promises to the church. So there's your outline. Verses 8 through 10, a mixture of praises and promises. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus makes a few more promises. Well, let's start by looking at Jesus' mixture of praises and promises in verses 8 through 10. Look again at what Jesus says in verses 8 and 9. He says, I know your deeds... See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I believe these two verses paint a a pretty clear picture of what was going on with those Philippian Christians there in their city. I think it paints a pretty clear picture of what they were dealing with. In New Testament times, each Jewish synagogue would uh, keep a book, a membership book, that had the names of, of every Jewish member of that synagogue there in the town. 
And so in those early years of Christianity, when Jews were converting to Christianity, it was very common for the Jewish Christians to go to synagogue on Saturday and then go to the Christian church service on Sunday. And as they went to synagogue in those early years, the Jewish Christians would still have their names written in the books. But as that turn took place, that shift took place midway through that first century, and all of a sudden Romans and Jews began thinking that Christians were a hostile new religion, guess what those Jewish synagogue rulers were doing to their books that had the names of those Jewish Christians? They began getting out their eraser of sorts and deleting and erasing their names. We find that shift taking place midway through the first century. The Jewish Christians had their names deleted, removed from the rolls and from the books in those Jewish synagogues. And so those Jews began to think that Christians were an existential threat to Judaism. And they began deleting their names. And that certainly happened here in Philadelphia. Christians' names were removed from the synagogue's membership book, and that was followed by the synagogue door being slammed in their faces. The Christians were rejected. They were evicted. They were excluded. They were kicked out and passed over. Or to use Jesus' words, they were shut out. They were shut out. Now let me ask you, have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? Many of us have. We've been shut out from relationships that meant a lot to us in the past. We've been shut out of places that we had oftentimes been to and and were very fond of in the past. Uh, Many of us have had doors slammed in our faces. We've been rejected. We've been excluded. We've been kicked out and passed over. We've had people who we cared about and who used to care about us shut us out. Why? Because now we were following Jesus Christ and they didn't like it. I want you to hear loud and clear today. You might have been shut out, but you are not alone. And Jesus knows what you've been through. Amen? You may have been shut out by family members, by friends, maybe even at work because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says you're not alone and He knows what you're going through. Did you know that in many Muslim countries today, If you convert to Christianity, not only will you be kicked out of the local mosque, you'll also in many cases be kicked out of your own family, kicked out of your own home. There are many Christians today that in certain Muslim countries, when they have made decisions to convert to Christianity, not only were they kicked out of their family, in many Muslim countries, that family of theirs will actually hold a funeral for them. The family members know good and well that that new Christian family member of theirs is still alive. But to them, that Christian is dead. They're dead to them. And they will actually hold funerals for those new converts to Christianity. Jesus says you're not alone. Our sinful world is very good at slamming doors in Christians' faces. Our sinful world loves to shut us out. But never forget that Jesus is the doorkeeper, which means Jesus opens and closes the doors, catch this, that matter the most. Amen? So we may, for the rest of our lives here on earth, continue to have people slam doors in our faces, but Jesus reminds us here in His letter to the Philadelphians, you know what? 
I have the access to the most important doors in the universe. And when I open those doors, they can't be shut. And when I close those doors, they can't be opened by anyone. Jesus is the doorkeeper. In Acts 14, verse 27, and in 2 Corinthians 2.12, and in Colossians 4, verses 3 and 4, we read that God is the one who opened doors of opportunity for us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us. And we also know that Jesus Himself opens the door to heaven. So in both ways, Jesus is in charge of the most important doors in life. Jesus tells the Philippian Christians here in verse 8, and He also tells you and me today basically this. Christians, it doesn't matter how many doors have been slammed in your faces. I have opened the most important doors that none of your critics can slam shut. I have opened the door of opportunity for you to share the gospel with people who need to hear it, and I have opened the door to heaven, so don't you forget it. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Now, notice in verse 9 what Jesus promises to do in response to His precious children being shut out. He says He will make those so-called Jews, who Jesus calls here a synagogue of Satan, He also calls them liars. He says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and admit that I love you. Isn't that something? Jesus says, I will make your critics, those Jewish individuals who kicked you out of their synagogue, I'm going to make them fall down and confess that I love you. Jesus loves you. Well, like the Jews in Smyrna, who Jesus also called a synagogue of Satan, the Philadelphian Jews must have been slandering these Christians. They seem to have been spreading lies that God hated Christianity. And God hated their church. And most of all, God hated them personally as Christians. To which Jesus responds, liar, liar, pants on fire. One who is both holy and true. That's me. I am the one who's holy and true. And I'm here to tell you the truth. God the Father loves you, Christians. And I love you too. And one of these days, I'll make those blaspheming liars fall at your feet and confess this truth themselves. You are loved by God and you are loved by Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You are loved by God. I want you to notice these wonderful little praises in verses 8 and 9. Jesus says at the start of verse 8, I know your deeds. Uh, Jesus uses this same phrase in His letters to five of the seven churches. Sometimes when He uses that phrase, He leads into saying, uh, I know your deeds and they're not very good. Other times He uses this phrase, I know your deeds, and proceeds to tell them things they were doing good. In this case, it's very clear from the context that Jesus loves the church of Philadelphia's deeds. He thought their deeds were very, very good. It's clear from the context that Jesus is quite happy with these Christians in in uh, the uh, I said Philippian, didn't I? Uh, here in, in Philadelphia, he's very pleased with what they're doing. Notice what he says at the end of verse eight: "I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name." These Christians in Philly had been through a lot. Uh, they were tired. They were really, really tired. 
They were sapped. They were physically and emotionally drained. They were exhausted. But through it all, they kept obeying God's Word and holding tight to their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, can you relate with that? You've been serving Jesus Christ, but honestly, you are tired. Really tired. You've had people coming at you and slamming doors in your face and you're exhausted, you're emotionally and physically drained, but despite all that, you keep obeying God's Word and holding tight to your faith, even though no one around you supports you at times. And Jesus turns to you and says, I am so, so proud of you. And I want you to know I love you. I love you. In verse 10, Jesus adds another praise coupled with a promise. Jesus starts by saying, You have kept my command to endure patiently. Just about everything in Christ's kingdom requires patient endurance, doesn't it? Growing in our faith requires patient endurance. Uh, Producing spiritual fruit uh, requires patient endurance. Overcoming temptation requires uh, patient endurance. Anything of value in the kingdom of heaven requires patient endurance. I want you to show you one of my favorite movie clips that illustrates this point so, so well. It's from the movie Rocky Balboa, which, if you're counting, was Rocky VI. And in Rocky Balboa, uh, that hero from the American Philadelphia pulls his son aside in the street one night, and he has this to say to his son. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. Isn't that good? Isn't that so, so good? It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can be hit. And keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. The Philadelphia Christians were really good at this. They would take a licking and keep on ticking. They would get knocked down, but they would keep patiently enduring and moving forward. They kept Christ's command to endure patiently. And as a result, Jesus promises to spare them from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. That sounds like the great tribulation, doesn't it? That seven year period of intense suffering on earth right before Jesus' second coming. It sure does sound like the Great Tribulation. Perhaps Jesus is promising here to spare His church from that entire seven-year tribulation. Christians who hold to the pre-trib, the pre-tribulation view of end times will point to this verse and say that Jesus here is saying that those Christians in Philadelphia will be raptured before Jesus allows that Great Tribulation to come. 
Others that don't hold to that pre-tribulation view of end times will say, well, uh, Jesus isn't necessarily promising that they'll be raptured before the tribulation, but he's certainly promising to shield them from much of the pain and suffering that will take place during that great tribulation. So it's safe to say, regardless of your view of end times, it's safe to say Jesus spares his children who follow and obey him faithfully. He spares them a whole lot of misery. Amen? Amen. What an awesome God we serve. Now, Jesus makes a few more promises to the Philippian Christians. I said it again. Philadelphian Christians in verses 11 and 12. Promise number one we find in verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. He says, I am coming soon. Isn't that a great promise? All God's children say amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This world we're living in is full of so much sin and so much suffering and so much pain and so much disappointment. Come, Lord Jesus, come. He promises He is coming soon. Jesus says, hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. In other words, keep the faith. Keep obeying my commands. Keep enduring trials patiently. To our church, Jesus is saying, don't forget your mission, Impact Christian Church. Love, learn, and serve. Keep loving God and people. Keep learning my word and getting to know me better and better. And keep serving people. And as you serve people, you'll be serving me as well. Well, the second promise he gives is in verse 12. He says, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Do you remember that modern day photo of Philadelphia, that modern day city of Alashira? Alashahir, I should say. I pronounced it wrong. And that modern day city. Remember, let's look at that picture again. Those three pillars, 2000 years later, are still standing in the middle of that modern city. After 2,000 years of earthquakes and aftershocks and hot summers and cold winters, those three pillars are still standing strong. And Jesus says in the same way, you will stand strong and you will stand stable for me for all eternity. Amen? He makes that promise. Christians, you're just like those pillars. You will have a permanent place in my Father's house. Your critics may rattle you and slander you and slam the synagogue door in your face, but nobody can take away your spot in heaven. Amen? Once again, what He opens, no one can shut, and what He shuts, no one can open. And Jesus finishes His letter by saying in verse 13, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Between 1968 and 1980, excuse me, between 1968 and 1990, John McQuilkin served as the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. And he was really, really good at his job. Under his leadership, the enrollment of the Bible College doubled, and they were able to start two brand new radio stations. But after 22 years, he found it necessary to resign. You see, nine years earlier, his wife Muriel had been diagnosed with dementia, Alzheimer's. And over the course of those nine years, her status and her health had regressed to a point where at the end of the 1980s, as as John would go to the college located about a half mile from their home, almost every day his wife Muriel would walk that half mile to the college just to be close to him. She was scared. She was frightened. She was confused. 
And as it came to 1990, there were certain days when she would walk to that school as many as 10 times on the same day just to be close to her husband. He'd have to walk her back home and then she'd walk back again and again and again. And so even though he loved his job and his career there as the college president, even though that college needed 100% of his time, he realized that his wife needed 100% of his time as well. And he loved her more. So he knew what he had to do. He would have to step down as president of that Bible college and devote himself full time to taking care of his wife, Muriel. And here are the words that John McWilkin wrote to the staff and the students of his college as he resigned. He wrote, It is clear to me that Muriel needs me now full time. My decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially for these 40 years. And if I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, her occasional flashes of that wit uh, that I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. For the next 13 years, John McQuilkin loved and cared for his wife full-time until finally on September 19th, 2003, God called her home to heaven. Now, why do I share that beautiful story with you at the end of this message? Well, I'm doing it because I believe Jesus wanted me, me to remind you today that agape love, that Christ-like, holy, pure, selfless, self-sacrificial love is exactly what John McWelkin was doing. He was demonstrating that agape love and that is the same type of love that Jesus says here in verse 9 of Revelation 3 that He had for the Christians there in Philadelphia. It's the same kind of love. Some of us wonder what agape love looks like in the real world. I wanted to give you this real life example of what it looks like between a husband and his wife. Jesus said to these Christians in Philadelphia in verse 9, I have loved you. He uses the word agape there. I have agape Loved you. I have loved you in a holy, true, and selfless and self-sacrificial way. So think about that, Christians. Jesus has loved you. He is agape loved you. He loves you more than life itself. And He has been so, so good to you. So how can we help but echo the words of John McQuilkin and say to our Savior... I won't have to love Jesus in return. I don't have to love you in return, Jesus. I get to. It is a high honor 
to care for so wonderful a Savior. To God be the glory. May we follow in the footsteps of those Philadelphian Christians who were true to God, trusting Him and obeying Him and patiently enduring the suffering and loving Jesus Christ with an agape love. May we follow in their footsteps and love our Savior as He has loved us. Heavenly Father, we come to You in Jesus' name thanking You for the privilege of being loved by You. It is an honor to be loved by You. And it is an honor and privilege to love and serve You in return. Oh Lord, I pray in our marriages that we would love our spouses with an agape love. I pray, oh God, when people slam doors in our faces, we would love our neighbors anyway. We pray, oh God, that we would love each other at church with that agape kind of love. And most importantly, we pray we would love you in that way. For the glory of God and the advancement of your kingdom here on earth. Help us to learn your word. Help us to serve people and serve you. But most of all, help us to receive that love and return it to you, God, by loving you with all our hearts and loving others as ourselves. Thank you for this beautiful, glorious example of a loving and faithful church. Help us to be loving and faithful as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What a glorious word God gave us today. What a wonderful example. The Christians there in Philadelphia, despite what came their way, they were faithful, they were obedient, they patiently endured, and they loved Jesus Christ with all their hearts. Praise God for that. If you've never made a decision to enter a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not complicated, it's not easy, but it's not complicated. You know what Jesus says? A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And C, choose to follow Jesus Christ beginning today. If you'd like to make that decision to choose to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life, if you would like to receive His open door of salvation, and you'd like to walk through that door and know that you have a place in heaven, please reach out to one of our prayer and decision counselors. Their names and numbers are at the bottom of your screen. Call or text them. They'd love to talk with you about how you can make that decision for Christ right now. And we'd love to talk with you about how you can be baptized, making it clear that Jesus Christ is now Savior and Lord of your life. We are so glad that you're with us today. Please feel free to reach out to us if there's any way we can pray for you. Uh, reach out to us if you'd like to be a part of one of these wonderful ministries uh, during the month of December. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear how these broadcasts are a blessing to you and your family. Uh, let us know that these are a blessing to you, and we'll keep them coming so we can be, uh, like I said, a blessing uh, to your family and to others who need to hear the Word of God. Amen? Amen. God bless you as you serve and trust and love the Lord Jesus Christ with an agape love this week. God bless you.